Hello and welcome to Unpleasant Movies, the podcast dedicated to harsh and unrelenting cinema. My name is Sverre Ågård. And my name is Thomas Simonsen Balmbra. And today we are discussing a fascinating movie by Lars von Trier from 2013, starring Charlotte Gainsborough, Stacey Martin, Stellan Skarsgård, Shia LaBeouf, Christian Slater, Jamie Bell, Uma Thurman, Willem Dafoe, Mia Goth, Sophie Kennedy-Clark, Connie Nilsson, Mikhail Pass, Jean-Marc Barr, and Udo Kier. It's Nymphomaniac. Yes. There's a lot of actors in it. And a lot of movie in it. Yeah. <laughs> it's about the character Joe, played by Charlotte Gainsborough, whom we meet beaten in an alleyway, found by Stellan's character. Seligman. Yeah. And he kind of uh, helps her up and takes her to his place and asks her what's happened. And she proceeds telling her life story about her troubled past and uh, sexual exploits. And it's kind of a situation where she's expecting to be judged very negatively for her horrible deeds. And he's excusing a little bit the situations and, you know, looking at them in context of theoretical devices. Or Yeah, he's a, he's a man of literature. So usually either contextualizes it via writing or history or via fishing analogies. He's an avid fly fisher. Yeah. So a lot of his interests come in. And this film exists in several versions. It's cut up in two volumes. So this is about both of them together and the extended cut. There's the uncut version has cut away some of the explicit scenes because this film is very explicit. It is also <laughs> two different versions on top of that, which is them cut together as a whole and them cut together as two separate films. So I've seen them as volume one and volume two, and you've seen them as a one... Uh, one uh, seven-hour <laughs> masterpiece. You know, my experience with watching films that long, you know, watching them at home typically isn't that enjoyable. No, and it's not really an enjoyable movie in any sort of scenario. I mean, it's often beautifully, the cinematography is great and uh, a lot of the writing is good. It's made. It's good craft, but um, it's kind of excruciating to sit through seven hours of this movie in one sitting. And uh, like, to me, it felt incredibly bloated if you do choose to view it uh, as one seven-hour thing. It feels just incredibly in need of some heavy editing, which is what the, like the original release was much shorter. Mm. And it feels at times just really exhausting. Yeah, I would imagine so. I mean, I think I prefer watching it in two bits. I mean, they're very connected, so right. I mean, as, it as kind we- of cuts randomly a bit in there and it feels like you should see the second part quite closely yeah as we discussed it's not really like the second movie doesn't really stand up on its own Mm. Uh, you sort of have to watch them as one thing Mm. but you can't really like but then again watching it as one thing uh, continuously is just incredibly tiresome you know my experience with like really long films i a few years ago i saw saturn tango the bellatar which is a good film, but watching it at home, you kind of start cutting it up and it becomes quite exhausting. Yeah. Whilst I saw it at Cinematheque a few years later, and in that kind of a context, a longer film, at least for me, works a lot better. Really long films, watching them at home, I often find that tiresome. I will say to the movie's credit, it's not really dragged out in the sense that it has overlong scenes mm. or like it's um, just playing for time just mm. to do it throughout the movie. And it's constantly like... Um, Small stories and monologues yeah. and lots of characters. And like, there's lots of stuff happening. Yeah, it's quite dynamic. Movie. Yeah. At the same time, it's quite one note, the stuff that's happening. Mm. It's all centered around Joe's sexuality and addiction to sex, her mm. nymphomania. And there's several versions, right? There's the uncut, the more pornographic, as it's been described, version, mm. which is weird because this movie just is so non erotic. Despite all the yeah. like X-rated scenes, mm-hmm. it's really distancing to me. Yeah. I mean, it's very explicit, both in terms of, you know, sexual organs and penetrations and all that sort of stuff. But not very often erotic or sensual. And calling it pornographic, that's more a description of it being explicit, I think. The sex isn't really meant to titillate. No, not at all. Uh, it's, it's, not all of it is, is necessarily ugly. A lot of it's quite punny yeah. and uh, humorous and interesting. And it shows a lot of different types of sexuality and bodies. And it's quite playful in that way. And I really like how 
many aspects of physicality of a, a body. Sure, sure. Like at times it's almost body horror-ish because ultimately it centers around this compulsion for sex and for Joe's character. A lot of times it's a huge struggle for her to sort of consolidate this normal part of her life, like her everyday life with this all-encompassing urge to have sex all the time. And when you view it like I did in one sitting, this urge becomes so, like you can really feel the way it's just uh, devouring her in a sense Mm. or devouring her normalcy. To a certain degree, I think she likes that. How the the addiction, like her nymphomania sets her apart Mm. in, in a sense. That's what I'm getting from it. At the same time, it's a huge problem for her. But it's interesting, like the first part of the movie, a lot of that stuff is quite playful and it's not like a a huge problem in a sense. She has a lot of encounters. Some of them are quite, there's a scene where she and her friend board like a train and they have this bag of sweets and they're quite young. They're like teenagers. And one of them that, that has sex with the most number of men gets the bag of sweets at the end. So there's like a competition and a lot of, you know, those early parts, they're quite playful in that way. They're not like damning or ugly. Although, you know, many of those sexual contents are also not very personal or erotic or romantic or anything like that. In some ways, they're kind of boringly random and ordinary as well. Yeah, and a lot of the time they are quite masculine. I know the movie sort of deals with that theme mm. later on specifically, like mm. uh, discussing it, but it feels very... Well, to a large part, very emotionless when it comes to sex. It's it's like it can be playful and stuff, mm. but often there is no feeling involved. Mm. And uh, like specifically when she joins the sort of club yeah, uh, young women. with her friend, where the goal is to have as much sex as possible or whatever. Like one of the rules is you, there is no emotion mm. involved. I find it like the whole experience kind of unsettling in the sense that it's centered so heavily around female sexuality, yet it's written and directed by male. Do you find any sort of dissonance with that? I mean, uh, does it explicitly have to be a problem? Not necessarily. I think there are aspects of the movie where that's definitely worth discussing. And I think, you know, the the film has a lot of meta-narrative going all along the way, both in terms of (laughs) a man talking about a woman and country himself and his filmography. I mean, we talked about this in terms of Antichrist before, yeah. and it's even more explicit here where it's just as much about von Trier dealing with, you know, the themes he's interesting in the film, but also his own personal history with making films and the reception of his film and his, you know, public persona. And, you know, it goes on till his later films as well, House of Jack Built, where it's even more explicit. So, you know, all the way from, you know, his entire film career, his role as a provocateur has been extremely relevant in terms of reading his films. And in this later part of his career, it's difficult to see his films. And, and, and for that, I mean, it, he makes it so explicit that it's also about that aspect, not just like the character arcs and the plot of the movie. That's just, that's one aspect of the film. And it's, it's so integrated, the project of dealing with himself as a filmmaker and public persona, as well as the characters and the uh, plot of the film. But one of the things that I really like about it, it's a film that represents female sexuality in a, such um, unsentimental and, you know, it doesn't romanticise it. It kind of demystifies the physicality of sex. But at the same time, it's really interested in exploring the drive. Like, the drive of sexuality is quite mystical here, but not like the bodies or the acts necessarily. They're quite laid bare, quite flat in a sense. But yeah, sometimes quite playful, sometimes quite ugly. Yeah, I feel a lot of what you're saying. But to me, like in the context of Antichrist, Mm. I really liked it. And I didn't feel there was any issue with Mm. the fact that it was centered a lot around female sexuality because it Mm. had such many different levels to it. In this movie, there are certainly a lot of levels to the sexuality. And a lot Mm. of it has to do with symbolism and applicability to other situations and stuff. But in the context of such a long movie that's Mm. really centered around female sexuality, Mm. I found it a bit dissonant Mm. the way it's... uh, Like, at times I found it quite unbelievable. A lot of the characters and situations I find quite quite unbelievable. Uh, But but that's not really a huge problem in so much that I I just found it a bit off-putting that it's so centered around female Mm. sexuality Mm. when there's not really a female voice describing this 
ultimately it's a male writing females, right? Sure. And so when it's that long and that intense, at one point it's sort of the two images started to like split apart for me, and it became. I became really detached towards the end. Mm-hmm. Like, of course, I was quite tired. <laughs> yeah. But but I became quite detached. And towards the end, like, the monologues and the different mm. characters, like, all felt very two-dimensional and quite like like the author speaking through characters. Like, well, at one point, when Joe is uh, seeing the sadist, mm. for instance, and he goes on K. this long... Yeah, Kay. And Kay goes on this long monologue. It just doesn't feel grounded in his character. I definitely agree. A lot of the time, specifically when a character has a bit of trivia information or kind of... It's very clearly from Trier's voice, which yeah. is it's kind of charming. It's often a bit nerdy in a way. He kind of looks at this, like, historical element. Right, I, lo- I like those details. And yeah, those details are interesting. They're not yeah. boring, but they're definitely Fontier's voice projected into the character. And there's a dissonance there where they might seem quite rounded and clear in themselves, and then this voice kind of seeps into them. And Which makes the characters feel less like characters and more like mouthpieces at times. Like yeah. Suleiman, for instance, often mm. goes on these uh, yeah. monologues that just feel like Lars Fontier talking about something that he's interested in symbolically. Well, I definitely agree. And there's there's a very theatrical element, like the back alley and his apartment. They, they look they, like they, theater yeah. sets. Well, they look like film sets, but like old school film sets. They're quite clearly lit, but they look like constructed environments. Yeah. And uh, there are a lot of constructs in this yeah. movie, like mm. the whole meta narrative, and there are so mm. many levels to stuff yeah. and all the imagery and symbolism. Mm. It's very, mm. very dense. Mm. And mm. of course, most of that is super intentional. Mm. But at the same time, you can't help but feel sometimes that you're just being sort of pushed away by it all. Like for me, I felt that a lot. I get that. And I I would probably assume that a lot of people get that feeling. And that's one of the reasons why I definitely prefer to watch it in two bits. Because through those hours, I'd expect it to be quite overwhelming and a bit tiresome. And you'd feel less receptive. When I put it in two, it kind of eases off the pressure a bit. And I get to enjoy. Because the latter half is also the more intense and ugly. Yeah. And also, when you watch it in, in just one sitting... Like you feel like you know his bag of tricks a bit mm. too well, mm. like as you're going along, mm. because he, he often reaches for the same narrative devices, the yeah, same types of uh, symbolism, and often repeating itself thematically and specific incidents goes back to those things. And it does feel a bit, um, it goes into the distance. It sort of blurs a bit and everything sort of feels like Mm. one monotonous, like Mm. uh, a little story after another with with a lot of the same sort of morals and themes and and symbolisms. And uh, it's quite, it's quite something. Yeah, I mean, it's unpleasant not only in its explicit nature, but also how it treats its spectator in a sense. Not just that it's intense, but it kind of tires you out a bit. And I, I definitely think that it is intentional and... You know, the way I read it is that, you know, Siegelman and Joe, in many ways, they're representing different aspects of Montreal's own voice. You know, there's a lot of conflict. The situation where he talks about PC culture, you know, uh, what kind of words are okay to say and what words are not okay to say. And the film doesn't necessarily take a specific stance, but the characters do. And you may agree with one or the other, but the point for me is that he's, he's having this discussion about... Can I say this word? And what are the reasons I should be able to say it? And what are the reasons I can't be able to say it? And concerning many of the themes in the film, he does that kind of thing where he's talking about the conflicted nature. And that's where I think he's also talking about his own public persona and his films. Right. This meta-narrative comes very distinctly into play. I think that's quite obvious. Like there's Mm. so much talk of himself really in how Mm. he views art and movies Mm. and sexuality and stuff. And I gotta, I really admire his dedication to the whole craft of this movie. All the writing, all the symbolism, all mm. these scenes, like it's very uh, impressive. But at the same time, I gotta say, I just, taken as a whole, I just don't buy it. It's so, it's hard to describe. It's so mm. bloated. It's so full. It's so full of itself. And I know that's a huge part of his intention. But at the same time, that doesn't make me like it you know <laughs> not that you have to like a movie like like supposed to be enjoyable but mm. it's supposed to be like that i can take something for it but mm. in the sort of cacophony of all these situations and narratives and stories it becomes too many voices too many oh. things for me and okay. it ends up with very little i think a lot of the, the things that are you know stiff or theatrical a lot of those things come from the, the framework narrative about right. the conversations between Segelman and joe yeah. 
But the situations you described from a life, I often find to be extremely well acted and uh, very interesting and quite amusing and uh, quite, you know, strong scenes of relationship and uh, drama. Right. I, I love Charlotte Gainsbourg's acting in this. Yeah. She's, She's absolutely great. mesmerizing. Yeah. And I mean, all of them are good, really. I mean, like Uma Thurman as this outraged wife. There is, and there are Shia LaBeouf there are, is so good in this. There are others I'm not so, I don't think, work quite as well. Yeah. Uh, Christian Slater, for instance, I found his sort of performance a bit, I don't know if he was miscast or what. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think he's a bad actor, but I just don't didn't think he quite worked in that role. Yeah. Uh, but like but and Shia LaBeouf, I, I think he did a great job, but I didn't quite believe the character. The way he's first portrayed and then portrayed in the workplace and then suddenly becomes this other character almost. Yeah, that's also something they talk about, like meta in the film that he right, kind of just right. pops up. But that doesn't sort of excuse the way it works in the narrative, even well, though you reference it. You know, it doesn't absolve you of your duty to uh, to make it work in the movie. Yeah, well, um, you can say that, but it points to the artifice of this character popping up strangely and being, you know, somewhat different. Like, to, it's also something about when she first meets him, as opposed to teenagers, and he's fixing a motorbike. And it's kind of random. She's just this guy. She decides he's going to be my first sexual partner. And uh, it's quite mundane, boring, like eight thrusts seen yeah. through the uh, Fibonacci. Uh, yeah. And then later on, she meets him and he's, turns out he's the boss at uh, the place she's working. And right. uh, he's, you know, he's not, it's not as if it's not the same character, but the framework around him is, is quite different. I think a lot of those things can also be attributed to, at least as long as Shia LaBeouf is playing the character, can be attributed to his like situation and him growing older. And stuff. Yeah, like you can say that I just, it didn't quite work for me, even yeah. though Shia LaBeouf did a great job. Yeah. It didn't quite work for me, but that's not really the the worst offender to me. Mm. Like there are other things that just really take me out of the story and make me sort of feel indifferent towards it. Mm. Like when uh, Joe goes to meet uh, Willem Dafoe's character, yeah, and she begins on this life of crime or whatever. Yeah. It feels just so fake. I don't necessarily attribute realism as something this is likely to have happened. No, but. No. I, I didn't, it didn't uh, throw me out of the narrative of the film. I found that segment to be quite interesting. And in terms of, you know, her drives and what she's willing and not willing to do. I think. Yeah, but like the thing is, it's not that I can't handle unrealistic scenarios. Mm. It's just that the internal logic of this movie eludes me. Like, I oh. don't really understand what, what all this is building towards. Like, there's so much fake shit. And then there's so much extreme realistic shit. Mm. And then it's all blended together in this sort of all these soliloquies and monologues about literature and, and sports and mm. all sorts of like diamonds and all these sorts of facets are brought into light. And it's, it's like a dish and you put too many ingredients in it and it just ends up tasting bad. I can appreciate that experience. Uh, to me, I, I think I just look at it from a more playful perspective. Like he's, yeah. he's throwing out a lot of stuff. And uh, maybe there are too many colors for some people. I feel that it does have a very distinct whole and a, a clear project. I don't feel like I'm put off or confused. It totally doesn't come off for me. The project is quite concise. It is the exploration of this character and her sexual drive and the ethics around her choices and her sexuality, how she impacts others, how she is impacted by others. And seen through the lens of this Zelig character. Right. And I would draw a distinction between how I sort of feel about mm. this movie and how the movie, like, I know the movie is. Yeah. I don't think that Lars von Trier didn't know what he was doing. No. I think it had a quite clear idea and vision and he made it happen. Mm. And I do commend him for it. And it's a bold and brave movie. It just didn't quite work for me. But at the same time, you, I watched it in one sitting and mm. I don't think that's healthy for anyone. <laughs> yeah. So I think like if if I had just let a couple of days go between mm. the first part and the second part, I might have appreciated it more because definitely towards the other half, I felt very exhausted mm. and I was starting to get sort of annoyed. Yeah. It. And th- that sort of colors your perception of the movie too. Uh, at the same time, there are it's a lot of artifice in this movie. And mm. even though it's definitely. intentional, it does get grating to me at times because I know the director is sort of playing with me. Mm-hmm. And he knows that there's <laughs> a lot of artifice in this movie. And that's sort of Lars von Trier's personality as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can't get too mad at him yeah. because of that. But at the same time, he is playing with you. And he is trying to like gaud you into reacting to stuff 
Definitely. And at one level, I really appreciate that. Mm. I really appreciate a director being such a fucking asshole <laughs> towards the viewer, which he is constantly in, in most of his movies. Well, I think that's an interesting topic of discussion. Yeah. I like that you, you don't have to treat your viewers irreverently. I do like that you can sort of bother well, them. And in be some in ways, I feel like testing the limits of your audience is also a way of respecting them more. Yeah, but it's a sort of Socratic thing mm. where you sort of poke and you prod and you sort of find the faults and then you discuss it and then you explore it, right? Mm. At one level, I really appreciate it and respect it. And at another level, it's just confounding to me. I think it's good also to talk about some of the things that it does really well that I feel I haven't seen in cinema much at all, really. Like what? Specifically in terms of representing sexuality and different types of sexuality. One of the things that's kind of... I mean, it's quite heteronormative in the sense that she's exploring sexuality in all these different ways until she's a grown-up woman, and only then there's a question of exploring, like, heterosexuality. But aside from that, it's very willing to, like, explore a lot of the... And there's so much vulnerability and um, humour in their sexuality. And, and even though it's a male voice, whenever do you see someone willing to explore female sexuality to such a degree as here? I mean, it almost never happens. No, I, I agree. It's, it's, it's a really bold choice to do depict these things. And it's directorially very well done and acted incredibly well. So there is a lot of vulnerability and a lot of humanity in, in a lot of these scenes. And, and in also case, in a sense that you don't really see it a lot anywhere. And it kind of deconstructs a lot of like sexual ideas. Like there's this scene where she, she decides she wants to have sex with someone whom she doesn't speak the same languages. So she hires an interpreter to go talk to this African guy and he kind of gives her a hotel address and she meets up. He shows up with his brother. So there's two guys and she's going to have sex with them. And most of that situation is these two guys talking in their language about the practicalities of how they're going to do it. And arguing. Uh, yeah, they're, they're kind of sighing, annoyed and kind of discussing how we're going to do it. They're not really communicating with her very much. It's mostly between them and kind of the positions and how they are. It's almost as if they were doing plumbing or something and they, were, <laughs> they didn't agree. Oh, you shouldn't do that sort of thing. You should do it like this, you know. It's quite precarious yeah. and pragmatic. And it's, you know, you could easily imagine that, oh, now... Uh, it's going to be interracial sex, it will be animalistic. But it's not like that at all. It's The physicality of it is much more pragmatic. And I, I really like that he goes there in a sense. Uh, yeah, the scene is kind of funny. And of course, it's completely devoid of any romantics or yeah. any emotion at all, apart from like the sexual aspect of it. But even that feels very just physical and not yeah. any emotion in it at all. And her way of exploring that situation and stuff, it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, the whole project sort of reminds me of a book. Uh, mm. I don't know if you read it, Uten and Tero, uh, by Jens Björnebo, uh, Without a Thread, I guess, a thread, threadbare, threadless. I don't know how you'd uh, translate that, but it's essentially a lot of the same. It was a book that was banned in Norway yeah. for being pornographic, and he wrote it under a pseudonym. And there was a huge trial, and so it became a sort of a, a big holding point in the discussion of pornography and literature and art. Yeah. In Norway. And that book just really reminds me of this movie because it centers around a young woman and her sort of exploring her sexuality in a lot of non-normative, mm. uh, non-traditional ways. And at the same time, it's very obviously written by a man mm -hmm. in a way that this movie also is quite obviously mm. written by a man. Mm. And so there is this dissonance. And uh, in my opinion, it's probably his worst book. Is there any indication that Andreas might have read this book? Is there like a... I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised. There are a lot of sort of commonalities there. Mm. And given his fascination for the pornographic and mm. the sort of discussion of sexuality and stuff, it would not surprise me at all. Jens uh, Bernabeu, you know, he's, he's one of the big Norwegian authors, but I'm not sure he has much of an international... Uh, no, it's a shame because he's a great author. He has does have some recognition in Germany and stuff, yeah. but I'm not sure how much of his stuff has been translated to English. Yeah. It's, uh, he's one of my favorite authors, but that book in particular is kind of bad. Mm. But it's the project is interesting, mm. and the, the debate it sparked is interesting. Like mm. re reading about it is more interesting than reading the book. But yeah, it does remind me of that. It's just interesting the way these sort of Scandinavian men deal with uh, well, how, female sexuality in a way that wouldn't really be like I couldn't see like an American director do the same project mm. you know what I mean it feels very European the way it sort yeah. of uh, takes sexuality so. and discusses it how would you characterize this male gaze on female sexuality what are the things that you find interesting or off well I guess it's a sort of a lack of emotion okay that's a thing that jumps out of me mm. the sort of 
And not that females have to have this deep mm. emotional attachment to stuff. That's just a general mm. observation that I find often when you read female authors mm. and watch mm. female directors. There's often a more sense of uh, bond between people. Not to pigeonhole anyone, but that's just a, a general, real general mm. observation. Mm. And with the book, for instance, there's this sense of um, like the mechanical is so important, mm. you know. Well, you know, I think that's a good observation. And there's definitely a sense of the character, Joe. That's also, you know, typically a male name. It doesn't necessarily mean anything in this context. But. Well, it does have a reference later in the song Hey Joe by Jimi Hendrix, yeah. which is a song about a guy shooting his wife for infidelity. Yeah, but she, there is something masculine about her, or let's say traditionally masculine, about her lack of emotional investment in anyone, really. I mean, she's quite connected to her father, but her husband and the father of a child, Jerome, you know, she's not deeply emotionally invested. And her son as well, who we only see as a, as a baby. Yeah. While it looks like she cares about him, but she's not deeply invested. Like there's not much of a maternal instinct. No. And of course, some women do struggle with that yep. sort of attachment and, and lack of emotion with sex. And of course, nymphomania or, or mm. like sex addiction is a mm. real problem for many people. So it's not like he's making this stuff up at all. Absolutely uh, not. It's just sort of a uh, feeling you get watching yeah. this movie that it's quite not male-centered, but traditionally male in its depictions of a lot of these yeah. situations. But that's... I don't think anyone would be surprised that this voice came from like a heteronormative white male. No. And there's a... There's a scene also later on in the movie where she's in group therapy. They're talking about like being sex addicted. And she kind of shames the other women's variants of sex addiction. And, you know, that might also um, fit into this discussion in terms of how she negatively looks upon how their sex addiction works in contrast to her own. They're much more connected to the emotional sphere. Maybe. Right. And that's also what I meant earlier when I said that she sort of feels... Like eventually you get the feeling that she enjoys her position as being this sexual outsider. Mm. But maybe that's just her trying to convince herself or trying to free herself of the guilt mm. and the feelings of inadequacy and um, abnormality yeah. connected with all these things. It's not yeah, necessarily that mm. she really does feel that liberated. Yeah, because I mean, there's also this element of is she a reliable narrator or not? Those aspects do come in specifically in terms of like the artifice around the framework narrative. But yeah, let's try and talk a bit more about some of the scenes that are really interesting. Yeah. She's with Jerome, the Shia LaBeouf character, and they're at a restaurant. And they're quite playfully, he uh, says he'll give her $5 if she can, you know, hide a spoon inside herself. And she smiles and she goes and gathers a whole bunch of spoons and uh, stuffs them up herself. Kind of discreetly at first, but then other people start to notice there's something weird going on. Right. And then Udo Kier, who's a waiter, he comes and he serves them this really nice ice cream in a glass bowls. And he says, oh, haven't you gotten any spoons? Uh, and she says, no. He goes and gets some and they eat it. And it's quite playful and enjoyable. And then when they stand up to leave, all the spoons fall out. And he sees this, the Udo Kier character. And he's kind yeah. of... And his expression <laughs> is kind of priceless. Yeah, it's, it's really... Funny and weird and, you know. But there are a lot of funny and quirky and, like, surreal scenes in this mm. movie that work very well. Especially just if you look at it on its own. Of yeah. course, when you have the whole context of her sex addiction and stuff, it does put a, a bit of a darker hue Yeah. On. And those darker things, they especially come in later on as, as consequences of her. You know, we talk about him referencing his own filmography. There's a very specific reference to Antichrist in there. Yeah. Where... She's uh, with Jerome and they have a child and um, her kind of sexuality becomes too much for him to handle. And he, he kind of describes her as a tiger. When you have a tiger, you have to be able to feed the tiger. So he kind of indirectly opens up for her to have sex with, with other men. So she has a bunch of these different relations. And one of these relationships is a sadist whom she doesn't have sex with. She kind of just shows up to this waiting room and there's this whole thing about whether or not she will be accepted. And he kind of pretends to slap her and she shies away physically and says, you're not ready for this. This isn't for you. I really like the way they construct the relationship. And he's a young man, but quite serious. And he has these very strict rules and stuff. Anyway, she becomes quite addicted to this specific thing going on. And she can only be there in the evenings and early morning. And she has trouble getting the babysitter to watch over the kid. Because he's very strict, this uh, K character, the sadist. And he says, you have to be there then and you have to bring these things. And he's 
totally uninterested in aspects of her life. That's not relevant to his. Yeah, she also clear out that he has like several clients that show up. You have to wait in the waiting room. So it's not about her specifically that he's disinterested in necessarily. But anyway, so she leaves the kid at home. The babysitter hasn't arrived. You can tell that the babysitter isn't going to come. And Jerome is, we don't know anything about where he is. And while she's away, we see scenes that almost, you know, they recreated almost from the beginning of Antichrist. It's not black and white, but it uses the same music. Yeah, and the, the kids... Schiaccio Pianga, it's a prologue by Handel. Same song from Antichrist. Yeah. It's like the same scene. Yeah. It's very funny. The kid goes up and he walks out towards the... Um, balcony and you're just thinking oh he's gonna do it again <laughs> yeah and it kind of implies very strongly that he does yeah large for three are you gonna kill another kid <laughs> in antichrist when that happens that's a sexual scene between loving partners very close by it's kind of the um lack of responsibility is quite ambiguous you know here it's very clear cut yeah and both of the parents are not it's not just that she's not there because she bears a lot of responsibility for just leaving the kid. But the funny thing is, of course, that the child doesn't die. No. He's just standing there when Jerome comes home and he kind of puts him back. Like the parents act worse and the consequences <laughs> are less. Yeah. It's, it's a nice way of reframing that sort of scene and yeah. scenario. And there are other moments where he references his own. Like this movie mm. feels so referential. Mm. It refers to so many previous works of himself and of by others. Yeah, and he uses um, actual bits from his own films, like this, these uh, sliding doors from Riget, the kingdom, yeah, yeah. In, in a scene. And in this context, it's meant to represent a vagina, I guess. And he uses some shots from Melancholia, some just shots of the universe and stuff. So he very explicitly uses them. There's one thing that I noted, mm. for instance, like he makes a lot of like historical references mm like factual references. Mm. And a lot of it I don't have a lot of information about. Yeah. But the stuff I do, there's it's often misinformation. Okay. <laughs> uh, like the, the stuff about Diabolus in Musica, the tritone. Yeah. It's just wrong. Oh. It's just a common misconception that that interval was banned. Tell us, what is that? Well, the story goes in Nymphomaniac, and it's a story often told by mm. musicians and stuff, and non-musicians especially, that there was this sort of uh, interval between tones that was banned by the Catholic Church for being diabolical. Okay. And so they used this as a sort of theme song for their uh, sex club mm. or whatever, because they're so irreverent and don't care about anything except having sex, right? But the fact is, that was never the case. That's okay. just a common misconception, and it's often spread, like, in popular culture and stuff. Does so it have it, some basis in history, or is it just like... Well, some sort of intervals were viewed as more uh, correct than others, but yeah. you could use whatever, and, and often that interval was used in medieval music, so mm. that's just... It's just wrong. Mm. And it makes me think about what else in this movie is yeah. not right, maybe. Even though it seems so encyclopedic yeah. with knowledge and references, I think a lot of it is just surface... Like factoids, almost. Yeah, and his, his use of the, like, the golden spiral. Yeah, the Fibonacci the, sequence. Yeah, the Fibonacci sequence as a means of you know, aesthetics. It's also the kind of thing that you learn you know, in art school pretty early on right. as a principle. I mean, it's not, you know, there's a lot more to aesthetics than that. Maybe the film isn't so well-researched in those things, but that might also just be an expression of the Stellan Skarsgård character, that he's kind of superficial in, in a bunch of his knowledge. Yeah, like um, a bit, bit of a pseudo-intellectual in yeah, a way. Um, yeah. Maybe. I mean, the, the interesting thing about him, because he's kind of the total opposite of Joe. Asexual, he describes himself as. Uh, he's never had sex, and he's, you know, he's an older gentleman. And he's, at one point he says he tried to masturbate a bit as a young man, but didn't really do anything for him. And his, you know, knowledge and interests are much, you know, his experience is much more connected to like reading yeah, or through other media. Yeah, observing, not experiencing life. Well, she's, she's less learned and more like experienced directly yeah, with she's bodies. Ex she's experienced so much that she has mm. a wealth of empirical knowledge, whereas yeah. he has all this theoretical knowledge yeah. from his hermit-like condition of mm. just reading and, and uh, observing. And he's quite naive and childlike and he often... He represents the politically correct voice, while she's often marked the more challenging and uh, kind of argumentative stance on what's correct or not correct. But both of their viewpoints mm. are kind of sophomoric or, or quite undeveloped. Yeah. Like both of them seem like uh, the kind of viewpoints you'd have at like 18, 19, mm. where you feel pretty strongly about you. Like, um, like both of them seem not like frauds or anything, but they seem a bit... Um, they feel very strongly about stuff they don't necessarily, maybe they haven't, like they have too strong feelings about certain subjects that are in their essence diffuse and hard to really 
mean anything meaningful about. Mm. I guess like a lot of the discussion does feel like it takes place on this very, a lot of the times they're kind of hostile towards each other, like they're an- antithetical. Yeah. Yeah, I get what you mean. And I'm not saying that's bad. Mm. Like, that's just how it sort of feels. And of course, towards the end, to give a major spoiler, um, mm. he tries to have sex with her mm. and she shoots him. She's gone to bed. They kind of finished and she calls him her first friend, more or less. She goes to bed and it's kind of finished. And then while she's sleeping, he comes in and he takes off the covers and then starts kind of masturbating. And she kind of wakes up and says, what are you doing? And he says, well, you have sex with thousands of men. And uh, she says, no. And he, and there's a conflict and it all goes to black. And uh, the implication is that she shoots and kills him. And like the, the preceding discussion they've had is that she's done problematic things, but she didn't kill someone probably due to a, a subconscious error on her part. Something she should have known like, on the gun that she used. But yeah, she does kill him. And uh, like to me, it feels like a almost meta-contextual mm. sort of comment on like the way I sort of felt mm. about it. Well, actually, the way I feel about it now, looking back, mm. is that it feels a bit like Lachantier calling out the hypocrisy of the politically correct viewpoint yeah. by saying, "Yeah, that's what they say," mm. but in reality, they are just like everybody else, and they're just as creepy and just as uh, yeah. human. But not necessarily just projecting it on others, but also himself. I think there's a lot of this self-doubt in terms of which voice has legitimacy. And I think a lot of this film has to do with that kind of conflicting nature of himself in terms of experience versus knowledge. I mean, this film also has to be seen, you know, the preceding film, when he released it, he had a comment, the uh, Cannes Film Festival, where he compared himself to Hitler. Not very seriously. I mean, if you see it in context, I think you'll think he's being stupid, but not seriously necessarily. Fallback was quite severe and rightly so. And he directly references this debate in the film. Yeah. But it also, I think this film is a part of him dealing with the conflicting feelings about um, what's right to say or do and what's intended and, you know, how you relate to your spectators. And right. Uh, to me, it feels like a lot of the viewpoints from Joe is yeah. coming from this sort of fontrierish, uh, provocateurish sort mm. of uh, naysaying or sort of uh, mm. to fuck with societal sort of uh, constructs. It feels like a lot of what Joe is saying does feel like it's coming directly from the mouth of Rush Fontrier. Well, in some sense, but it's also questioned and contextualized by the Selig character. So she'll tell about an experience where something happened and uh, she says, I feel really guilty and bad about this. And he says, I say nothing wrong about this. You were a vulnerable person in this situation. You acted as you thought was natural. And he'll try and contextualize it in some way. And which might seem shallow or stupid. And sometimes it might seem right. Yeah, I think a lot of that dialogue actually works very well. But I think almost all of it is null and void because of Solomon's actions later. They color everything he said. Like at that point, <laughs> you, you go, was anything he said, like, did he mean like, because he says I'm asexual, clearly he's not asexual. Yeah. So what is that? Or was he asexual and was trying to, it does put a question mark at his comments, right? I definitely agree. But I think there's a nuance here because I think that's a dialogue as well. Because the thing is, so I read him as still as an asexual character, but obviously he's seriously curious about sexuality and he's also talked about how he's. Interested in kind of, and I think here he kind of thinks there's there's an opportunity to explore that aspect of himself and he does it in an extremely inappropriate and wrong way and clearly hasn't understood. It's a transgression in terms of her, definitely. definitely. So he crosses the line he shouldn't have. At the same time, she also crosses the line by killing him. Or shooting him at least. Yeah, yeah. That's my interpretation because the screen goes completely blank and you hear a shot and a thump, basically. I interpret it as murder just because of the context it comes in. Yeah, I agree. That's how I interpret um, it too, but it's not really clear. You have to yeah, interpret There's some ambiguity there. And I see this in context of how Montreal often operates in terms of challenging the spectator, where he kind of puts you in a role. There's a, there's a really nice book called The Feel Bad Film by Nikolai Lubecker. There's an essay on Dogville, and one of his um, discussions in that essay is about awakening your inner swine dog. Schweinhund. Yeah, Schweinhund. And that's a very interesting argument there. And I think there's a, a similar um, mechanism going on here where he kind of activating the negative emotions and impulses in the viewer. 
I mean, you're sympathizing with Joe in that setting. He's, you're staging it in the way that yeah. he puts you in a specific situation. Yeah. Like, that's his intention. He usually does this very well. No. But my, my point is that it's still a dialogue, and the dialogue hasn't stopped the attempted rape or, or, or sexual situation and the murder. That's also the dialogue, in a sense, and, and they're both taken to their extremes of the things that they haven't done before. Right, but because, uh, like the way I viewed it, mm. because I sympathize with her as mm. being sexually assaulted. Yeah. That sort of transgression doesn't ring as extreme to me. But at the same time, and I haven't really thought about this, <laughs> they're both transgressing yeah. at the end. Like the end of their verbal discussion mm. is a transgression uh, for both of them. Mm. And that's interesting. That, and that works very like symmetrically. Yeah. It's a quite nice way to cap that off. Mm. I think I, when I'm watching it, I, I feel like I... I agree with your perspective that Joe is the character that you're empathizing with more than him, just because you get more emotionally involved in her. And there's yeah, something slightly off about Something his, a bit unnatural. This hermit-like life that he's chosen to lead. I mean, you, you don't get his life story at all. And the way he kind of, there's something naive and, you know, a lot of his experience seem to be indirect and maybe not as authentic, but I think then that is the conflict of Fontrier himself, where he's looking at these aspects of himself, like the experiential versus the theoretical, and less to do with like actual human beings, how they function in a naturalistic setting. Right. A part of it is also, I think, people have prejudices against asexual people. Mm -hmm. And that's like a large part of what people might find creepy and stuff. Like mm -hmm. we generally find like Catholic priests mm. that have taken a vow of chastity to be sort of creepy mm. and unnatural because we know that's generally not how people are. Mm. But at the same time, finding asexual and sort of hermit-like people creepy mm. is mm. maybe also kind of prejudicial yeah. uh, towards asexual. So it's, it's, it is interesting yeah. the way that's framed. But then, you know, I'm not sure that this is a fair representation of an asexual person. No. That, and, and uh, I wouldn't be able to comment on that, and it may well not be. But I don't think that's the point of Frontier's project. But I think part of what makes the character a bit creepy to me mm -hmm. is that I don't quite believe it's quite asexual. Yeah. And you sort of yeah. feel that before the reveal towards the end. Mm, I agree with that. And well played by Stan Skarsgård, yeah. of course. I mean, he, he does sort of portray this... Uh, he's riding the line of being believably sympathetic and mm. yet having this depth beneath that. Yeah. I think he, in many ways, represents one of the voices in front of himself where he's the kind of doubt and he doesn't really trust that aspect of himself so much. So you don't really trust Zelig so much either. No, but it does feel like a work by Plato where he puts mm. these characters out discussing yeah. uh, certain viewpoints and then you clearly have what's yeah. more his viewpoint. But you have like replies and, mm. and actual mm. debates, uh, but, but it is essentially Plato discussing with himself in a Socratic fashion. Mm. It really does feel very, I guess you could call it navel-gazing in that sense, because he's very interested in what he has to think and say about these subjects. Of course, that should be what he should be. Okay, but like. I have an argument in terms of that. Yep. Because if this was literature or another medium, you might have a different, like, there's a lot of creative people, painters and you know, when they are towards like the latter part of their career, a lot of their creative impulses has to do with them as, as creators as well. And with Fontrier, it's an increasing tendency. It doesn't start with Antichrist. It comes in earlier, but from Antichrist to Nymphomaniac, to like House of Jackson. Yeah, it's certainly increasing. It, it's like him dealing with himself both as a filmmaker and as a character in the public view who's times problematic. But there's a playful, like a pan, like jokester... Obviously, he's dealing a lot with himself, I think. I mean, that's a, a lot of his earlier films as well. I mean, he has a lot of female characters who are from Breaking the Waves or whatever that are quite intense, they're quite problematic. This isn't the first time he's been labelled as misogynist, which I think is a, a gross mislabeling. Yeah, I think that too. Actually, I find it fascinating that he seems to emotionally invest himself so much in... Like, I feel like he often... His sort of uh, avatar in these movies, mm. if you can dare to call it that. Yeah, uh, of course, that's in the gross oversimplification. Yeah. But uh, they, they are often female. Yeah. Like he often, like that's often the way he sort of develops and expresses mm. his views through these female characters. So in that aspect, I, I think it's like as far from misogynistic as you can get because he 
he does take females very seriously as people mm. able to express their own views and opinions. Mm. And, uh, you know, often non-typical females, like back in the wave, she, she's not normative, definitely. Yeah. But often he, he, he has characters that are not normative. Yeah, and he's not normal himself, so but what is normal anyway? But it's interesting, the sort of framework of him discussing his own work and legacy, because, like, we've discussed this in... <laughs> In relation to hip-hop and yeah. rap music before, the way... Well, I, I know I've talked about it before. Mm. The way when certain rappers or, or hip-hop artists reach a certain level of fame, mm. they start rapping about all the fake friends. Yeah, yeah. And all the hangers-on that just want their money. And it, it's always <laughs> the same theme. And it's just... It, it's so predictable. Yeah. And that's sort of one of the most boring ways you can deal with your legacy and of fame, you know? Yeah. They just want me for my money. Like, yeah. that's not really relatable to anybody but rich people. So <laughs> yeah. you don't really feel very sympathetic towards that viewpoint at all. Even though I'm sure it can be, like, socially frustrating and yeah. isolating and stuff. I'm sure it's authentic. Yeah. It's just you don't really care when you're struggling <laughs> to pay rent. Right? Yeah. So, but at the same time, you have other artists like David Bowie, who, who like, really... Mm -hmm developed his own legacy in a beautiful way with his last album before he died. Mm, Black Star. It's true. So you have these ways of dealing with your sort of authorship or artistic oeuvre, like your artistic legacy yeah. uh, in a way that can be done very interestingly, but it is a, f a very dangerous road to go down because I think it often can be viewed as very navel-gazing and sort of uh, self-obsessed. Yeah, can definitely have that aspect. And I, I think you can talk about those things about Fontrier. Another example I wanted to talk about in terms of music is actually Jill Scott Heron, who had this amazing career in the 70s, like this pre-hip-hop style. Word, yeah, jazz. Which was quite revolutionary, both in terms of theme and in terms of style. And then he comes Good back. Stuff. Yeah, it, it's great. And, you know, very iconic. And, you know, lots of people know his revolution will not be televised. He comes back at the very end of his career with an album called I'm New Hair. And he's like super gravelly voiced. And he's much more, you know, there's a lot of regret. There's a lot of dealing with, you know, a wasted life and fame. And he's, he's reflecting a lot. And it also mixes like the aspects of spoken word with like the more musical things. Uh, that's one of the like really amazing examples of like, re-examining yourself right. and your career, I think. When artists are able to do that, I think that's the sign of a, a really, really good artist. Yeah. When, when you're able to do that in a compelling and way that's not sort of distancing or, or pushing mm. people away, but mm. actually sort of letting people into your mm. world and also using it as a tool to examine other parts of the world, mm. viewing it through your lens, as it were. But I, I think one of the reasons why, at least for me, von Trier's way of doing it doesn't bother me is that he's very playful about it. Yeah. And in this, for example, you know, most of his films, I'm not going to say all his films, I can't be sure, but most of his films are cut up into chapters. This one has eight, I think. And the, the thing that's quite funny about this, where he starts to deconstruct it, because they're in Siegelman's room, and she's looking at objects in the room, and they are kind of, there's a mirror, there's a chapter called The Mirror, you know, there's a gun, there's a stain of some a lure on the wall. Yeah, all these things are like specifically from the, he's kind of deconstructing his own work, which he's done before as well, but he's kind of playful way of dealing with himself, dealing with himself <laughs> In a sense, uh, right? I, that kind of appeals to me, at least. Yeah, yeah, but I agree. I do. I do find that very like this movie doesn't bother me. Mm. Like thinking about it or or knowing that it exists, it, it bothers me watching seven plus hours of it. That bothers me. But <laughs> yeah. but uh, knowing that it exists, that's good. I'm glad this director exists and, and is able mm. to make these sort of incredibly like uh, dense pieces of art that are extremely specific. And very niche and very unusual. Like, you don't see a lot of movies like this mm. ever. It's very one of a kind almost. Uh, and that's, that's Lars von Trier. He is uh, like the eternal provocateur. And he, he does get his kicks from, from making these, these works of art. And often it's very compelling. And there is a lot of compelling things about this movie. Yeah, and, you know, it's one of the things that I think it's easy to forget. It does have a lot of nuance in character in terms of guilt or humor or like internalized gaze. There's a situation around the abortion, for example, what if, if her actions, she has to self-abort uh, or she chooses to self-abort. And like a lot of these things that he, he plays around with, I think there's a lot of nuance there. That's if they're just in scenes on their own, or if, I mean, if you imagine this film without the framework narrative of Sigelman and uh, Joe talking about it, just the scenes, I think for a lot of people, it would have been an easier sell 
because there is a lot of enjoyment and nuance and situations that are really well constructed and uh, right and often it's the framework dialogue and stuff that feels kind of stiff and disjointed yeah, and artificial uh, yeah and i think if you just view the narrative through just a lens of joe and without the meta construct the meta narrative it might be i think more people would i think you'd have less troubles viewing it it would be a more normal movie but i also think it would be less interesting mm, in a I agree. sense yeah. Uh, but at the same time, there are there's a lot of graphic sex stuff in this movie that I don't really feel contribute a lot to the movie. But at the same time, without it, it would probably be a bit less interesting as well. Yeah, I mean, it does a few things. There's a scene early on. I'm not sure it's, it's necessary precisely, but he just shows like just a series of male sexual organs, just like a whole bunch of them right in your face. <laughs> I mean, it's very... <laughs> As a thing to do, it's very, it's confronting and like, I'm sure a lot of people, myself included, are kind of uncomfortable with having all these male genitalia shoved in my face. Yeah. Did I particularly need that? It's sort it's, of funny. Yeah, like it's, it's, it's very, it's, funny. it's very funny. But the thing that's also kind of nice about it is that he, he normalizes a bit what a body looks like. And as I said before, there's, there's no mystery around the physicality of sex. And, well, not just sex, bodies yeah. and stuff to do with sex. Like yeah. also the abortion scene, which is... Yeah. One of the most unpleasant scenes ever. <laughs> like, I got to commend him for making one of the most unpleasant scenes in cinema. Yeah. Like, watching that scene is just... It's quite horrible. horrible. Yeah. Just so horrible. Yeah. Like, uh, it's in the Unpleasant Movies yeah. Hall of Fame of um, unpleasant uh, scenes. Yeah. When he's removed this fetus, this is this animated fetus. Yeah. just moves a bit. <laughs> oh, my God. It's, it's quite... Um, and she's just having, like, some spasms yeah. afterwards, just yeah. lying on the kitchen floor, and it's just so... So intense. But, you know, the thing that's really interesting about that as well is the preceding situation where, you know, she doesn't know she doesn't want to have. It. And she's in a, a situation with a doctor and she says, you have to have a consultation. And she says, I'm not interested in it. I don't want a consultation. I don't need it. I'm just going to get rid of the child. And he says, well, that's fine, but you do have to have a consultation. So she goes to meet this woman. And even though like in liberal Scandinavia where, you know, choice is up to people, she could have easily have just gotten the agreement but she's, she's very confrontational in that situation, which that's absolutely fine because the framework with this person who's supposed to be able to decide whether or not she gets to make this choice, the way he, he, he creates that framework, just the voice of another who decides, I think that's really good. Yeah, actually. somebody else controlling your body, mm. basically. And, you know, it's not initially a hostile point of view, this consultant. But no, she's but not receptive. Joe is yeah. very abrasive. Yeah, she's abrasive, but also like the questions he has, like, did you love the father? You know, all these things that are not relevant. There's something really invasive about that, just that context of another person who's supposed to make that judgment for you. And that framing, I think, is really uh, interesting and, and well done. It would have been easy to just have like an antagonistical person who says that there's no way you're getting abortion. Mm. That's a really bad thing to do. That conversation comes up a little bit between her and Sel in terms of... Right, uh, and also her sort of confronting him about abortions and he yeah. says, well, it's not murder. And then she's like, it's a weak thing to say, like say what you really mean. Like, yeah. uh, I killed a fetus, right? Mm. But then, of course, he, he's like, that's a woman's issue. That's sort of... Of course, uh, in large part, that's what I feel too. Like that's mm. a woman's like. How can a man really put himself in that situation? He he just won't be able to. But her viewpoint is like, well, you should be confronted with it nonetheless. Yeah, you should see the ugliness. They're talking about this um, nutcracker, which is a tool they use to crush the head of the fetus if it's too large. And that's you know that's horrible to hear about. And they don't actually show that kind of situation. They, they just show, show the tool. The tool yeah. and, and the doctor talking about yeah. it in a sort of and wide that's, way. That's horrible enough, you know. I, but I agree with her point of view that, yeah, I mean, it is ugly, but you don't get to shy away. These are things you, you need to know. Right, but at the same time, the whole procedure is yeah. sort of uh, unnecessary. <laughs> like, she's doing it on, on herself. Like, it's a lot more macabre than it would have to be, and she's yeah. not under any uh, anesthetic. Yeah. As she says, you know, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. A, lo a lot of the questions raised in the sort of huh. narrative are often just commented upon and discussed mm. uh, between Solomon and Joe. And that specifically, yeah, she says she's, she does it the way a lot of people do it around the world without anesthesia, and the fetus suffers a lot more because when she's under, then the fetus is as well. So, you know, physical pain it experiences would be much less if she didn't have to self-abort. Yeah. Definitely an unpleasant movie. 
Very uh, one unpleasant. that has a lot of things on its mind. Very, very unpleasant, but also with some very pleasant imagery. Like yeah. There are some very symbolic, symbol, like the, the tree scenes and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, where she finds her soul tree. Yeah. Like that scene is just beautiful. And and the framework is so nice as well, because you, you had issues with Christian Slater. I kind of like that character. That he no, plays I, I he, liked him. Yeah. I just felt like he was a bit one note not really the way he was acted mm. but the way he was written except i really liked and it was really well done mm. when he was dying yeah that was really well done that's very that's one of the like emotional causes yeah i agree uh, you have this whole thing about him talking about trees and what they represent and him talking to her that's like one of the really nice aspect of the father-daughter relationship and he's talking about soul trees like some people say that in the winter when the trees have lost all the leaves what you see the bare tree that's like a soul you can find your own soul and at some point he shows her, I found my soul and it's this tree and it's a trunk that divides into two. And she asks him, well, how does that kind of thing happen? And he says, well, typically a tree is split when it's young and it's kind of damaged and then it grows in two ways. And then she asks him, uh, did this happen to you? And he kind of just smiles and says, it can be quite revealing talking about your soul tree. <laughs> right. And then later on, she discovers her own soul tree, which is towards the end of the movie. She's uh, grown up and she's been looking for it and hasn't found it. And then... It's a top of hillside and it's a Wind tree. Windswept, just yeah, straggly. totally bent. Yeah, yeah. Visually, it looks great. Yeah, uh, even though he's a bit on the nose with the. Well, you know, the symbolism of this film is very on the nose. It's right. not. There's not much subtlety in terms of like the visual. No, but in a sense, that's sort of the core of the movie too. Mm. Is the whole demystifying stuff, like mm. the death scene with Joe's father, mm. uh, Christian Slater. Again, it shows a lot of stuff that you normally don't deal with. In movies, like dying can be a very harrowing process. And yeah. if you've had somebody close to die and you've experienced that shit, you know it's, it's a lot more intense and often a lot more brutal than it's shown in movies where it's often this peaceful thing. Yeah. But often you get delirium and you fucking, like you, shit's going on in your head that you can't even explain. Yeah. And you're, it's like, I remember seeing this documentary once mm. about this masochist. And he's like this exhibitionist mm. and he does a lot of performance art with like sex stuff. And he has uh, cystic fibrosis mm. and he's dying of it. When you have cystic fibrosis, you don't have a good life expectancy. And towards the end, he's like dying his, his lungs, he can't get air. And it's, it's really horrible to watch. It's, it's a harrowing documentary towards the end. And towards the end, he's like, he has this, like right before he dies, he has this moment of like almost clarity, like, mm. the fuck is this? This is mm. fucked up. Like, what, what is this? What the fuck's going on? Yeah. And then he dies. And, and you see some of it in, in Christian Slater's character. Yeah. In this too, like he has these moments of clarity and these moments of just pure horror at what, what is happening to him. And you can't really do anything about it because it's not pain. Yeah. And the whole yeah. way that is demystified in a sense in this movie really ties in with all the demystification yeah. going on in this movie, like with sexuality, like with bodily stuff. And I, I really like how that's done because, you know, when he's lucid, he kind of um, settles on the notion, yeah, I'm going to die, I've accepted it. But then when he's closer to death and he's more in the delirium, then he's in extreme angst and pain and fear yeah. and all like the, the strong wish to live. It's quite ugly and different from like the peaceful character we knew until then. Yeah, yeah. it's such a contrast to this sort of... Uh, yeah. And this, quite frightening, actually. Yeah, quite frightening, quite horrible. And such a reality for many people, for mm. most people are going to experience the death of a close one. You know, sometimes people die suddenly, but sometimes it's a low and long and horrible process. Yeah, and, you know, very sad. And there's often a lot of fear and... Yeah. And it's often brushed aside, like yeah. I know... Carlo Wojtkowski discusses this a lot in his second book in uh, my struggle series. Yeah. Where he talks about how death is sort of uh, brushed under the carpet. Uh, like you don't see bodies in a modern society, really. No. They're just uh, driven to the mortuary or whatever. Mm. You don't really see them, and you don't really have any sort of physical connection with mm, bodies. Yeah. They are just a sort of uh, evil spirit in society. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I remember seeing a relative dead as a young child and the sunkenness of the face yeah. and there's this kind of recognition okay i can i can tell this is the same person just like the, the physicality having been changed so much is quite frightening in yeah. a way that you can't really relate without like the emotional investment in like the person living from before it's, it's yeah, very right. different yeah there's such a change like to me too when i mm. because I, I saw my my, my grandmother after mm. she died mm. And it was like the change is like superficially she's the same, but like mm. the there's just 
such a deep change mm. in, in how a person is from life to death. Mm. Like the, it's just it's just basically bones, meat, and like there's nothing mm. there's nothing alive mm. about it. And there's such a that sort of process is so hidden away. Mm. Uh, and it, it's commendable how Lushfrontier does depict that whole situation. But again, it's really unpleasant. Mm. This movie in general is very unpleasant. <laughs> I would rate it a nine out of ten on the unpleasant scale. In in a lot of different ways, yeah. Like the yeah. length of it is unpleasant. Like yeah. it's it's meta unpleasant as well <laughs> yeah. as like explicitly unpleasant. Yeah. And and like the narrative is unpleasant in a way mm. where it's sort of poking fun at you at times. And mm. and yeah, it's unpleasant on a lot of different levels. Yeah, and also like situations, unpleasant situations. Like I, I refer to there's a there's a confrontation where young Joe she's had a relationship with a, a married man, and the wife turns up with the kids. It's played by Uma Thurman. It's a beautifully played, just this really intense uh, situation where she's heavily, heavily guilt-tripping, yeah. rightly so, and putting her kids in a terrible situation. <laughs> I mean, she's she's sort of a terrible mother. Yeah. She's yeah. really traumatizing those kids. Yeah, yeah. It's beautifully acted by Uma Thurman. Yeah. And that situation is, is quite funny and like really tense and unpleasant, almost like the office type. Awkward. Yeah, it's so awkward. Uh, she's like, oh, let's have a cup of tea. Let's yeah, sit down yeah. and discuss this. Like, <laughs> yeah, should we leave? No, let's stay. And then this other sort of uh, romantic interest or like sex interest yeah. uh, comes knocking at the door with mm. like a bouquet of roses and he's invited in as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah let's have a conversation. Yeah, it's so awkward. And also funny on top of that, because the Joe character, who's she's not terribly put off and she's certainly not emotionally invested in this husband. And she just Who says, has left his wife for yeah, her. But yeah. she, she has no interest in staying with him. No, no, no. And she says, like, I, I don't love you. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's just it's so a great bad. scene. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but Lush Frontier, he, he does have an uncanny sense of humor yeah. in a lot of his scenes. No, I, I really like it. And it's a, a film that's willing to do things few films are willing to do. And uh, while I, I certainly have issues with certain aspects of it, I do think it at times hasn't reflected as deeply as thinks it has. It does bear a bit of like a male gaze. And I think there's a lot of things you can talk about in this movie that what works and what doesn't. But I think it's willing to try a lot of stuff that's, uh, you know, before I saw this film uh, originally way back, I'd heard so many bad things about it. And um, when I saw it, I was so surprised that it was so lighthearted and playful in a way. Yeah. And I think that's often my experience, like these newest film, House of Jack built as well. I've heard people kind of sighing annoyedly about what it is. Although I very much enjoy that as well, I have to say. But um, it's certainly not for everyone. This film isn't for everyone, but uh, it does a lot of things very interesting. And, you know, it's easy to imagine that this film is a lot of things that it isn't. Yes, but I would also draw a distinction between the different mm. versions of this movie. Yeah. Uh, because watching the just incredibly long mm. director's cut isn't the same experience as, as watching the regular theatrical cut. Mm. But at the same time, the core of the movie is the same, I'd say. But mm. I would not say I enjoyed this movie. I, I found it harrowing and long and tedious mm. and very interesting at times. And But but just overall a very unpleasant experience. Mm. Uh, well, actually, if, if anyone who's listening uh, has seen both the extended and the uh, theatrical versions, because I haven't seen the theatrical version of the short. Right. Uh, I've heard some people talk about that they're, they're kind of edited better. And if someone has an opinion about that, I'd love to hear it. Well, my opinion is that it it's in dire need of editing. <laughs> <laughs> I would say you can edit away at least three hours of this movie. But it's still a very interesting project, and I'm glad it exists. And yeah. I'm glad we have Lush Frontier to make these movies. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'd give it uh, two popcorns out of four. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I'm going to jump into the on cinema <laughs> popcorn and uh well you can use something different than yeah. popcorns yeah yeah but they often do they often have the um sodas and uh, skulls or <laughs> treasure chests or whatever they right. put uh like uh whatever. two posters of tom cruise to go with that yeah five stars of popcorn three posters of tom cruise something i find the whole concept <laughs> of, of rating movies yeah. on a sort of numerical value system is so strange yeah
What's your recommendation this episode? So this time I'm going to do something I haven't done before. I'm going to recommend something I haven't tried. Okay. But it just looks so interesting that I think uh, other people might find it interesting as well. Cool. Uh, it's called Exonima, and it's a game. And it looks like sort of a mix between Dark Souls and Co-op, uh, mm. a game where you have to run by manual controls and mm. it's impossible because it's like physics-driven. So you have like force and stuff in it, uh, in the same a bit of the same way as this old game called Die by the Sword. If you ever yeah, played yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it just looks really funny. Like it, apparently it's super difficult and uh, hard to play, and the controls are difficult, and it looks uh, hilarious. So yeah, I'm going to recommend that. And that's kind of like a fantasy setting. Yeah, it's a fantasy setting. It's like a sort of a dungeon themed, like your dungeon crawling. It's based on, a, like, the, there was Kickstarter for a game called Sugeneris, which was basically all centered around this physics engine for mm. battle, which uh, can lead to some very interesting sort of situations. And also quite funny, because physics in games often don't behave quite the same as in real life. So yeah. you, you end up with some funny results. But yeah, I think that would be cool to check out. Mm-hmm. So do you have any recommendations? Yeah, uh, it's a book I recently read, American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis. Oh, a young up-and-coming novelist. Eh? Uh, well, he was at that point, actually. And, you know, a lot of people have seen the film, and uh, it's a good film. And it may be easy to feel like, I've seen the film, do I need to read the book? And I would definitely say, you should read the book, because it's, it's very good, and the film isn't really unpleasant in that sense. Uh, but the book definitely is. It's quite, quite harsh, and also very interesting and very funny. So don't let, don't, you know, your feelings about the uh, film notwithstanding, don't let that deter you, at least... I found it to be really strong, really strong and very interesting. Uh, the character has like this really strong hang up on Donald Trump, among other things. <laughs> it feels quite uh, relevant today, I'd say. Yeah. And uh, really well written, American style, you know, like easy to read and very enjoyable. And um, some chapters are just musical reviews. But anyway, so it's a lot more explicit than the film and genuinely quite uh, horrifying to read. But it's also very enjoyable. So American Psycho, if you haven't read it, you know, I really recommend it. It's really interesting and, and uh, good read. Yeah, because yeah, I've sort of thought, yeah, well, I, I saw the movie. Mm. So because it, it looks like one of those movies that are, that are so concise and well made that you almost feel like they really captured the book in a way. But of course, uh, you can do a lot of stuff in, in the literature that you can't do in movies and vice versa. Anyway... That's it for now. If you want to get in touch with us, send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com. Next episode, we will be discussing a different director. Uh, We're moving east again. It's going to be Visitor Q by Takashi Mika. And we'll be watching a a couple of other of his films also later on. The Japanese Marvel. That's right. He's the MCU of uh, of, uh, Japan. In a sense, his own cinematic universe. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so you can watch that in preparation if you like. The music for this episode was composed by Sverre Ogor and Jus Karning, the band Umulium. And uh, if you like this episode, please rate and review. Give us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, that's it for now. Um, we'll see you next episode. Certainly will. Yeah, take care. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.